You're listening to Houston. We have a podcast where we talk everything and anything, movies and their reviews. And this is episode 10. Hey, everybody. Show here. Welcome to Houston. We have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston We Have a Podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at houstonwehaveapodcast.libsyn, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite feed or on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I. That's S-N-S Alley. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Oh. Are you crying? <laughs> There's no crying! There's no crying in baseball! Why don't you leave her alone, Jimmy? Oh, you zip it, Doris! Rogers Hornsby was my manager, and he called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, no. No! No! And you know why? No. Because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball! No crying! That is a clip from A League of Their Own, There Is No Crying in Baseball. That is Tom Hanks, if you're wondering, when he was still kind of in his, kind of making that shift from comedy to drama, right, before he became the actor we all know and love today. Uh, the, the reason for using a clip from a movie that's however many years old, it will become apparent in this next segment. But I wanted to do something a little different. This is the 10th episode of the podcast, and I'm really happy to be doing it. We get a lot of good feedback. I get to talk to some interesting people. I get to talk about a passion of mine, movies. Uh, so because this is the 10th episode of the podcast, we're going to do something a little off the beaten track, at least for the podcast, certainly not in general. As we usually do movie reviews, uh, we are going to do one review. We're going to get to Thor Ragnarok a little later on in the next segment. But for now, we're going to talk to... Uh, a fellow podcaster, probably a little more famous than me, but still, he's a great person to talk to. He was very amenable to coming on the podcast. A fellow Canadian, got to get him on there. His name is Adnan Verk of the movie podcast Cinephile. And, you know, it's, you can find it on ESPN. You can find it on iTunes. Adnan himself works for ESPN. So when you, when you listen to this interview, and it was recorded a few days ago, uh, before, right before Game 6 of the World Series, you know, both Adnan and I work in the world of sports. He over at ESPN. I at the Sportsnet 590, the fan here in Toronto. And it's kind of cool to be able to have our paths cross, but not just for sports, but for movies, right? Both things we're passionate about. So without further ado, here is my interview with Adnan. Happy to be joined now by Adnan Verk of ESPN and, of course, the podcast Cinephile. Adnan, first of all, thank you for joining me on what must be a busy night for you. Shred, thanks so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. It's always good to hear from a, a fellow Canadian and a Cinephile listener. So, uh, yes, it is a busy night with uh, Game 6 of the World Series, but uh, it should be a ton of fun later tonight. It's always a, a balancing act for me, I'm sure, for many who have uh, other interests beyond sports, but it's always good when you have a good balance of movies and sports, and uh, it's been a great time for both, especially the baseball. Yeah, no kidding. I, I was actually working here at the Fan on uh... – for game five, and uh, you know that game was probably the most exciting baseball game I have ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty remarkable, just because um, you always had this feeling that the Astros were never quite out of it. In fact, either team was never quite out of it. And I mean, just the way the balls were being crushed. I mean, the fact that the Astros had five different players hit home runs, um, and just the way they got off the mat, like Brandon Morrow, who of course we know, uh, being from Toronto as the former Blue Jay has been so indispensable for the Dodgers, but unfortunately just 
fatigue has caught up to him. And you saw that he just did not have the same stuff in game five as he's had earlier in this postseason. Even in game one, he threw 10 pitches in the eighth inning was just so electric. Uh, and the Astros, the way they just stomped all over him. I mean, those three home runs was unbelievable. And um, you're right. I think for, for obviously you're younger than me, you know, for younger baseball fans, you don't remember 91, which is my favorite World Series ever, because that was two teams that went last place to first place, the Twins and the Braves. Every single game was a one-run game. And then Game 7 was immortalized with Jack Morris's 10-inning shutout, <laughs> and it was 1-10. Uh, 2001, by the way, is a close second for me. Yankees-Diamondbacks was okay. also an incredible World Series. The amount of drama in that. Game 4 and Game 5, the way the Yankees came off the mat and won those games. And then, of course, Game 7 was so good. It was Schilling and Clemens going head-to-head. Randy Johnson came out in relief. And we see that more now. Of course, Madison Bumgarner a couple years ago came out in relief and was, was unbelievable in 2014. Um for the Giants. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been been a lot of fun. And I do agree with you. I think for, for younger people, maybe who have not given baseball as much of a chance, if you watch games two and games five, you go, all right, this is about as good as the sport ever gets. And for anybody quibbling with the length of time, I don't, I don't think, you know, the regular season is one thing, but I think everybody who watched all five hours and 17 minutes was really rewarded with baseball at its highest level in game five. Awesome. I really think that there's nothing – more real than seeing an emotion like what Alex Bregman was giving to Ken Rosenthal after the game. He was just so excited to have hit that game-winning RBI. Yeah, Bregman's been a good story. You know, it's his first full season, but he's obviously had talent before. Uh, But this has really been his coming out party. And it's interesting for the Astros, oftentimes the guys who get the headlines are Springer and Altuve and Correa. But Bregman's been dynamite. The fact he's had an RBI... In all five games, he's 23 years of age. You can't beat that kind of consistency. And you're right, he's really shown unbridled enthusiasm, especially after a kind of a hit like that. All right, so in honor of the World Series continuing tonight and, you know, maybe ending tonight, who knows, but for the listeners out there, what is, if I could ask you, your favorite baseball movie? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's it's really fertile territories, I'm sure you know, compared to the the other sports, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, maybe just because of the history of the game, because it seems to always be linked with fathers and sons, and there's a lot of time for reflection, and literary people love it, which lends more to cinema as well. I mean, there's, there's very many reasons about it, but it's interesting how baseball has a really rich history of movies compared to, I think, the other sports, football, basketball, you know, hockey, right. boxing, et cetera, although boxing movies are quite good as well. It's interesting. Boxing and baseball movies are always the best ones. Um, but I would say I love Field of Dreams. You know, I'm obviously partial to that. It's okay. a very uh, sentimental movie. For those who don't like it, I think it's a little too sentimental, a little too far-fetched. But I think it has a, a nice combination of why you fall in love with baseball because it has that element of history um, with Shoeless Joe Jackson. But it's also about fathers and sons and redemption and, you know, hey, Dad, I want to have a catch. It's such an immortal line. And I thought costume was great. I love, uh, especially being Canadian, I love the fact that um, – it has Canadian roots with W.P. Kinsella. That's true, yeah. And, uh, in fact, I think, I think I read the original book when I was in high school, probably like I was in grade 11 or grade 12. I remember reading Shoeless Joe. So I, I was appreciative of that angle as well. And uh, James Earl Jones is great. And the whole cast is really good. For a fun movie, I love Major League. I think it's so funny, and it still really holds up, and it's entertaining. And I love the ending. You know, I loved, um, you know, growing up in Kingston, I was, you know, obviously, as you know, between Montreal and Toronto. Right. And I was, a, I supported the Jays, but I adored Gary Carter. I loved Gary Carter as a kid. I, I was a little bit of a catcher, but I was too short. I was too undersized. But I always thought catching was a fun position. And I loved Gary Carter's book, which is called The Dream Season. It came out after the 86 year when he won the World Series, obviously, with the Mets. But I knew enough about the Expos that he was a great Expo as well. And I remember years later reading that Tom Berenger's character, Jake Taylor, was based on Gary Carter. 
And I said, that's so perfect. You know, this kind of veteran catcher who's just, you know, ouncing. He's just wringing every ounce of talent out of his body. And that great last scene where he's, you know, he legs out like a bunt single. Yeah. And, you know, Will Wesley Snipes scores the winning run. It's it's so implausible to baseball people like you or me. But it's such a fun movie and an entertaining movie. And I hear it quoted all the time. The one that I'm not as crazy about, but I know a lot of baseball people love, especially the players that I work with, uh, is Bull Durham, of course. Very memorable. And, right. and all the players that I work with, whether it's John Crock or Kurt Schilling or Alex Cora or, uh, you know, Eddie Perez I work with, all these guys, they all tell me it just really feels true to them. Having played minor league baseball, they can really relate to that movie. So Bull Durham is definitely one I find a lot of players tell me about, but I'm, I'm partial to um, to Major League Field Dreams. And I should also mention, Schweb, uh, Eight Men Out is a great, great movie. Well, I love that film, which is uh, David Strathairn playing Eddie Seacott about the Black Sox. Scandal. Charlie Sheen plays Hap Felch and a uh, really good cast. John Mahoney plays the manager. People knew him later on from Frasier. And of course, John Cusack played Buck Weaver. You right, see those right. guys are so young in that movie now. Uh, John Sayles wrote and directed it. That's actually an adaptation from a book. And I just think that's a really smart, well-crafted movie. That that very early on got my feeling of always being on the side of the players. Whenever there's a union dispute, whether it's whatever sport, I'm always on the side of the players. I think the big reason why is because I saw eight men out. I said, these guys threw the World Series because their owner lied to them. It's always the owners that are at fault, not the players. Yeah, yeah. That's for sure. I think I think if I had to pick one, Bull, Bull Durham is pretty is pretty up there. I, I, what what are your thoughts on the League of Their Own? That's always a pretty popular pick as well. Yeah, I liked it. I think I've only seen it the one time. I did think it was a good movie. You know, as somebody who now really appreciates film history and tries to view things through a prism, I always think about that film and appreciate how important it was for Tom Hanks because it kind of allowed him to break out of the. the um, stereotype always doing these comedies you know he himself has said he was always seen as a comic actor and then after he did a league of their own where that character is just a big lout and you know loud mouth and kind of rude and mean and you know there's no crying in baseball like it's still a comedy but he obviously had some edges to him you know what i mean got the big gut and the alcohol and the scruff and before then people only saw him as wacky and funny tom hanks so it's actually really important film in the career of one of the great actors of our time because it allowed people to see that he could do drama and do other things. Um, but I thought it was a nice story. You know, obviously, anytime it's based on a true story, it has certain resonance. And the fact that it was an all-girls team. I like the cast, Lori Petty, Roseanne, or, uh, Rosie O'Donnell, excuse me. And uh, I thought, it, I'm sure it holds up. I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember Gina Davis was good in the movie. So yeah, it's definitely a, a sweet film and, and a well-done movie. Every time I see the League, a League of Their Own, I always forget that Madonna is in this movie. And it's, it's kind of crazy to see her as yeah. young as she is. <laughs> Yeah, Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell are good friends. I don't know if they still are, but I remember that time they worked. I remember watching like a episode of Arsenio Hall, and okay. they were on there together promoting a League of Their Own. That that just shows what a time capsule that movie is. The fact that I still remember those two promoting League of Their Own on that on that. But yeah, she did some movies around that time. All right, uh, let's move away from baseball very briefly. I love as much as I would love to talk about baseball forever, and I feel like I can. Um, I, I did want to pick your brain a little bit on uh, cinephile, if you don't mind. Sure. So I think when we when I asked you to do the interview uh, we were talking about you know good good movies versus bad movies and I find and we were talking about this here at work actually the other day uh, the idea of you know quote unquote good versus quote unquote bad movie is something that's often you know conflated with personal preferences what you like and what you dislike and obviously it's entirely possible to dislike something that's critically acclaimed while liking something that's supposed to be you know bad for, for lack of a better word and you know we see this every year when movies like Blade Runner 2049 perhaps don't perform as well as expected, while Pirates of the Caribbean 5 or Transformers 5 make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's nothing wrong with that. But how do you, as a type of movie critic, how do you separate liking something from what is actually objectively good? Or, or you know, has there ever been a case where you didn't like a movie that was critically acclaimed? Oh, yeah, of course. That always happens. I mean, there's a couple that jump out uh... 
movie Her, critics loved a lot. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix, he's in, in love with like a virtual reality character voiced by Scarlett Johansson. I thought it was just a ridiculous movie, and, and uh, critics loved it, got a lot of critical praise. There's another one of his movies that I didn't like either, although I really do like Spike Jones and I like Joaquin Phoenix for that matter. Right. Um, oh, it's an in New York, which is with Philip Seymour Hoffman, another one of my favorite actors. Well, that movie wasn't as nearly rapturously received. Uh, Forrest Gump is a movie I, I think is terrible and okay. highly overrated. Uh, that, of course, won Best Picture over two movies, which I love, when Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I thought the movie Crash never should have won Best Picture. I thought it was good, but not great. Shout out to a, a Canadian, like Paul Haggis, of course, yeah. who wrote and directed it. But I, I thought it was absurd that it won Best Picture over Brokeback Mountain. I thought that was a much, much more superior film and a much more daring film and more beautifully shot by Ogley. And I loved the performances by Ledger and Gyllenhaal. Like, I, I thought Crash was a good movie, but it really was clearly... Uh, playing to the you know LA audience and really you know anywhere else in America or Canada nobody would have bought that Best Picture because it featured an ensemble cast and they right. tried to be about serious issues they went for it but yeah those those happen all the time I mean there's there's always a movie that I just I don't understand where the critics are thinking on this and likewise you're right sometimes there's a movie that critics love and the audiences just don't like or don't get and Blade Runner is a good example of that that they were hoping for between forty and fifty million opening and only opened at thirty two million. And they say, why is that? Although I don't think that's a surprise. I mean, Blade Runner was a cult film. It was not, it's not Star Wars. It was not a major uh, box office smash when it came out. It was a cult film that was eccentric and bizarre and um, off the margins. And it really kind of just gained a following among real fans and, and diehards. And um, so I don't think, I mean, I think the studio was wrong to think that kind of movie would make so much money. Even, you know, Denis Villeneuve is a terrific director, again, fellow Canadian. Yeah. But with his other movies like, you know, Arrival and Prisoners, like this, this was his, this is his biggest opening so far, but he's not Michael Bay. Like, I'm not expecting a $400 million movie from him. Even Gosling, again, fellow Canadian, uh, that's the highest opening of his box office career, but he's not a guy who's a box office draw. Like, he's a big star, but his movies don't open with $50 million traditionally. Um, so I, I thought that was one where I think just the studio misprojected the number. Where, but I do think it was beautifully shot. I love the cinematography uh, by Roger Deakins. I love the score. I love Villeneuve's direction. I thought the story was good. It was a little long, but I thought it was very atmospheric. Uh, so I thought that the high Rotten Tomatoes rating and the high critics' response was correct. But unfortunately, audiences didn't see it that way. But I don't – I mean, listen, what I'll do now is that I'll check the Rotten Tomatoes uh, Flickster app, which I have on my phone. Uh, and just kind of be curious what audiences are saying or what or critics are saying, I should say. And then I'll just see the movie. But generally, if I want to see it no matter what, I don't bother looking at the number until afterwards. So okay. um, I'll give you an example. I just saw a movie called The Florida Project, which is 97% Rotten Tomatoes. So right. I'm only seeing that because it got a rave review. And I talked to a guy named Scott Feinberg, who's a terrific writer with The Hollywood Reporter. And he told me it's the best movie he's seen this year. And he called it on my podcast in a file, The American Slumdog Millionaire. So I said, okay, I'm going to go see this movie. Okay. And I thought it was really good. But I don't go in there saying, okay, this is a 97% movie. Because if you, if I said that to you, I'd say, well, no, I don't think it was that good. Like, I give it three to four Maple Leafs on my rating scale, which means I think it's a very good movie. I don't right. think it's a great movie. But, that, but that's where you can't get seduced by numbers and by ratings by other people. You just have to go by feel. Now, while watching the film today, there was a trailer for a movie called Phantom Thread. One of my favorite actors, Daniel Day-Lewis, one of my favorite writer-directors, and Paul Thomas Anderson. I couldn't care less what the Rotten Tomatoes ranking is, what the critic rating is. Like, I'm going to see that movie opening night no matter what. Now, if it's getting bombed in early reviews, I'll be aware of that. But it's not going to steer me away from seeing it. And generally, I don't read the reviews until after I've seen the movie. So in the example of the Florida Project, literally, I know the number was high. I know a guy I respect told me it was great. And I got that Slumdog Millionaire line in my head. And that's it. Now I'm going to go back and read some reviews and try to see if, if there's something that I missed or something that I can appreciate. Because I do love film criticism. I love 
great film writing, and that's something that I really, really love. And I, I used to read the reviews before and see the movie, but I found that, kind of to your point, it may shape my opinion of it. And so since I see myself as a pseudo-film critic, I, film critics are not reading other critics before they see the movie. They just see the movie, and then they think about it, and then they may read other critics afterwards. Right. So that's the approach that I've now changed. But in order to your original question, which is, what makes a good movie? What makes a bad movie? The answer is it's all subjective. It's it's beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and and sometimes a great movie can be made that gets overlooked. I mean, listen, uh, Hitchcock never won a competitive Oscar. Like and he's he's for many people the greatest director of all time. So there's no accounting for taste, and there's no accounting for the fact that mistakes happen all the time. My favorite director, Martin Scorsese, who's my you know idol in so many ways and someone I revere, did not win Best Director for Goodfellas. He lost to Dances with Wolves, which right. is a travesty. He did not win. He did not win Best Director for Raging Bull, which were lost to ordinary people. Like even somebody who doesn't have a film acumen, who I love, and David Letterman, when he talked to Scorsese when Wolf of Wall Street came out, he said to Scorsese, he goes, "Man, I saw Raging Bull the other day, and he goes, that's going to be the best movie of the last fifty years." Now, if somebody like David Letterman, who doesn't have a film criticism background, even he is like, wow, that's a hell of a movie, and it didn't win Best Picture, and he thinks it's the best movie of the last 50 years, well, that just shows you people are never going to be on the same page. So I find that I think the best critics, the ones that I like the most, don't really care where the audience is going. They just view it for themselves. But generally, when you have a good groundswell support for a movie that's good, then it is really good. Um, I'll give you one more example of a movie that I didn't think was great, which is The Revenant. I thought it was good, but I did not think it should have been a Best Picture Best Picture. Again, I thought it was just way too long, and it's just... Leo just begging for an Oscar by the end of it, whereas I, I was so happy that Spotlight won Best Picture, which to me was a much superior film. I have a last, last question for you, because I know you have to run. Sure. I'm sure you are, but are, I figure I should ask, just to, be sure, just to be safe. Are you familiar with, you know, Oter theory? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Yeah, okay, so, you know, for those who are not familiar, states the most, you know, in a, in a, in a layman's terms... States of the most successful films will bear the, you know, an, I guess the unmistakable stamp of a director in a visual sense, right? And some of the more famous yeah. ones that everyone seems to at least agree are movie auteurs are directors like, you know, you mentioned Scorsese, Akira Kurosawa, maybe Stanley Kubrick, Hitchcock, right? Famous directors that are, you know, a little a little older, maybe not even still around. Uh, I guess my question for you is, in that sense, in today's cinema, are there any true auteurs around? Are there any ones that you could you could look at and say, yeah, that guy is, I would consider to be part of the auteur theory? Yeah, first of all, I was going to say, I, as much as I do like the auteur theory, because I love directors, and there's no denying movies are a director's medium, I do love Sidney Lumet, who's one of my favorite directors, who once completely squashed the auteur theory and thought it was complete bunk, because as he pointed out, he goes, anybody who's actually ever made a movie right. knows that it's an incredibly collaborative effort, and it takes hundreds of people, and even the director, who has so much weight and influence, is at the behest of the actors who may not be in the mood to deliver the lines a certain way. He's at the behest of the editors who have to craft the film a certain way. He's at the behest of uh, the cinematographer who may have missed the one take that was actually the best take. He's at the mercy of the studio who wants the picture uh, marketed and promoted a certain way. So he, he completely dismissed the, the auteur theory. He goes, listen, I don't understand. That's a big conflict to directors, but it actually is untrue, which shows how generous Lumet is, because most directors are like, oh, yeah, auteur theory, of course, yeah. the best. But Lumet was... Lumet was such a generous filmmaker. He was always the first guy to say, no, it doesn't start without a script. And it's the actors that bring the words to life. Directors were just the ones crafting them. Even though Lumet, if you go by the auteur theory, is a brilliant director, of course, with Serpico and Dog the Afternoon and, and so many great movies he did. Now, 
to answer your question, there's only a couple that stand out. There's about a few that actually stand out to me. Wes Anderson, I think his movies always have the same feel and tone to them. Uh, to me, that's the detriment now. I love early Wes Anderson films. Royal Tenenbaums is one of my favorite movies. Uh, Bottle Rockets, a movie that Scorsese loves. Rushmore, I think, is a hysterical movie. But I think now it's just become too familiar. And unfortunately, sometimes I think Wes has just repeated himself. I haven't been as much of a fan of his later work, whether it's Life Aquatic or Grand Budapest Hotel or, or yeah. films like that. Uh, P.T. Anderson, who I mentioned earlier, I can't wait for his new movie, Phantom Thread. I think he has an unmistakable personal stamp with his films. Uh, you know, his best work like Magnolia and Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood clearly has the same elements um, and the style. And the other one I would say is Alexander Payne. I think his movies okay. definitely, when you, when you watch them, I can tell it's an Alexander Payne film, whether it's about Schmidt or Sideways or Nebraska or his new movie coming out, Downsize, which came out in December. I think those are the three directors that really stand up to me, P.T. Anderson, Wes Anderson, Alexander Payne. When those guys make a movie, I pretty much can tell which way it's going, and, and I appreciate that. I think they're real artists. I throw in Darren Aronofsky as well. I did not like his latest film, Mother, although I did think it was audacious. I didn't think it worked, and it was ultimately a failure for me, even though it was awfully gutsy. Uh, but when his best films, like Rec Room for a Dream, uh, obviously, Black Swan's a great film. You know, when, when he's made really good films, I think he's definitely in that category as well. And uh, do you think, just because you mentioned Michael Bay earlier, can the case be made that he is an auteur? I feel like he has a pretty distinct visual flair himself, even if his movies aren't necessarily always uh, good. Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to pass on that one. I, <laughs> you know, I, I could, to honestly, Shweb, I'll defer to you because honestly, I don't think I've ever even seen, I mean, aside from The Rock, I don't, I, I definitely have never seen Pearl Harbor. Okay. People told me you should just watch the uh, the explosion scene. So I think I, what I did was that about a year ago, I DVR'd it and I just watched The Assault because I knew everyone told me that was really right. good. It was well made for like 40 minutes. I didn't bother. Some, I haven't seen any of, I don't think I've seen any of these other movies to be honest with you. And I was like, maybe the original Bad Boys I saw when I was 10 before, like I really appreciate film criticism. Right, right. So, I, I, I understand your point. I mean, he, he's listen, he's obviously remarkably successful. His movies make a ton of money, but they're not to my own personal taste. So yeah, I, fair enough. I couldn't tell you if, if he fits in that theory. But he, listen, I'll say this. I don't know if he's an auteur, but he definitely is a brand, and he definitely is a recognizable brand, and his movies make a ton of money, even though I think for a lot of people he's a hack, and, and I just have no interest. I mean, the thing is, if you start to branch out and say he's an auteur, then maybe Tyler Perry's an auteur. And again, there's another guy I have just have no interest True, yeah. in their movies, even if I respect how much money they make. But I, I, you're right. I guess if you went by the letter of the law, I'd have to actually analyze their films and see if it works. But are they definitely a brand unto themselves, like how Spielberg or Scorsese or Kubrick was? No question. Even if I don't think they have the same stamina or quality or film excellence, they do definitely get a movie made, and, and they have uh, they have the money to prove it. Awesome. Well, Adnan, thank you so much for joining me. I know you have to run, so I'm going to let you go. But uh, I really appreciate you joining me. Uh, Adnan Verk of ESPN and Cinephile here on Houston. We have a podcast. Adnan, thank you again. Awesome. Thanks, Trev. Be the best. Okay, we can't have a movie review podcast without any movie reviews, so let's get to our lone movie review of this episode. And Thor Ragnarok is probably one of my favorite movies I've seen this entire year. I know I'm a kind of a sucker for the Marvel movies, for superhero movies, for that kind of thing, but... I think this movie is, is a little special. It's a bit of a love letter, a bit of an ode to the MCU, but we'll get further into that. So without further ado, Thor Ragnarok. Thor Ragnarok, directed by Taika Waititi. It's just a wonderful movie. Honestly, if I could stop right there and say, hey, in one sentence, how would you describe Thor Ragnarok? I would say it is a wonderful, funny, creative, 
colorful movie and that you should go see it. So if you don't listen to the rest of this review for fear of spoilers, and I'm not going to spoil too much, really, but, you know, we'll go a little more in-depth into the movie. But if you had to stop right now, that's what I would say. It's a fantastic film, and you should go see it. Now, of course, we want to get a little more in-depth. It's, it's just so inventive. A lot of the other Marvel movies follow a formula, and they, you know, they go, the characters go from point A to B, they solve a problem, then they go from point B to C, and then everything is great, right? A lot of the issues with Marvel movies in the past as well is that, one, the villains are not that great, they're not that compelling, right? Especially in the Thor movies. And two, the third acts of the movies, the kind of the climax and the, the and the the subsequent denouement. I know that sounds really pretentious, right? But that that third act has all has a lot of the time in the Marvel movies not been super great. You know, it's kind of been a bit of a letdown. And I think in both cases, Thor Ragnarok bucks the trend. And whether it's Taika Waititi's direction or the music or the acting or all of it together. I think Marvel has something really special on its hands, something that, and I think this is probably the best Marvel movie of the year, you know, it's just, like I said, it's inventive, it's creative, it's funny, it's colorful, but we'll get to each thing individually. So we'll start with the music, actually, because you, you just heard uh, Magic Sword, um, I believe it's called In the Face of Evil, we, I, think, I believe that song was actually in the trailer, which is why I use it, they have a lot more different kind of have music in the in the songs in the, in the movie rather as well and it's it's just so much fun it's 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 uh, the song is the movie is scored by Mark Mothersbaugh uh, and it's kind of an 80s almost like what synth wave soundtrack it's it's so nice to hear that departure from the kind of sweeping classical Shakespearean tunes of the previous Thor movies it's such a departure and I think the movie is a lot better for it because. Like I said, it's so colorful, and the music really does match the visuals of the movie. It, it moves fast, it's fluid, it's kind of funky, you know, and it, it goes with the general aesthetic of Thor Ragnarok. And it's, it's just kind of offbeat a little bit. It's, it's, your, it's not your typical Marvel movie. Not that it's inappropriate, certainly. Children will find it funny, adults will find it funny. But it's definitely a little out there for a Marvel movie in the same way that Guardians of the Galaxy was. And we'll get to the whole comparisons between Thor Ragnarok and Guardians in a second. But I do want to talk about the acting very briefly. And this movie really allowed Thor, you know, Chris Hemsworth, to kind of go outside his acting box that's set within the Marvel Universe, right? He got to show his comedic skills. It, it was just really fun to see. He has excellent comedic timing. And we got to see some of that in some of the other Marvel movies, right? I mean, if you recall in Age of Ultron, and I'll, I'll say this about Age of Ultron. That movie is just fantastic until the very end of the house party, right? The movie, the movie starts, they go into Sokovia, they bust things up. Thor and the rest of them, specifically Tony, gets kind of his, he has his, he- his head messed up by the Scarlet Witch. And that's, what, that, that's kind of what leads him to create Ultron, right? So when they, when they return to New York, they go into Avengers Tower and Tony and the rest of the Avengers throw a party, right? And that party scene is, I think, honestly, if I could have a whole movie of them just doing funny things like that, I would watch it, honestly. It might be a little boring after a while, but regardless, I think that would be really cool to see. And I don't know, I just really think that we got to see a lot of comedic elements in that scene in Age of Ultron. And one of the things, if you remember, is uh, Tony Stark and Thor meet at the bar, and they're kind of bragging about their girlfriends. And, of course, na- neither Natalie Portman nor Gwyneth Paltrow were in these movies. 
And, of course, everyone thought Gwyneth Paltrow was done with the Marvel Universe. Then, of course, we saw her in Spider-Man. Natalie Portman is officially done with the with, with the Marvel Universe, and we know that she dumped Thor. Um, they kind of broken up, right, uh, in Age of, in uh, Avengers and in Ragnarok as well. Just a very convenient way to kind of write her out of the story. Fine, whatever. Not really super important. Um but we in that scene in Age of Ultron, we kind of see them kind of bragging about about their girlfriends to each other and how and and that the scene kind of ends with Thor goes Jane is better and then he walks away and that was a, a such a such a brief snippet of the funny Thor right we, he's always so so melodramatic and all the other things and it was so fun to see Chris Hemsworth a talented comedic actor do that right it was it was really great to see in Thor Ragnarok Loki Tom Hiddleston got to show off some more range for his character he's not really a villain anymore really he's as close to an anti-hero the MCO really has and of course the relationship between Thor and Loki is something that's been explored in a number of movies and it's really cool to see them explore their relationship a little more it's evolved since the end of Thor 2 which of course ended on a bit of a cliffhanger with Odin and all that kind of thing you know, Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett's Hela and Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie are two new characters that we're seeing for the very first time in Thor Ragnarok, and they are two of the most badass women characters in the MCU so far. And Hela is just so good as a villain. Now, she doesn't get too much time devoted to her, and she does a great job with the parts of the movie she has for herself. She's clearly having a lot of fun. She looks so amazing. I can't believe Kate Blanchett is 48 years old. She's just amazing in everything she does and i really liked her performance but i don't think she necessarily really elevates above to the kind of quote-unquote next level of marvel villain right i mean to be fair the only two villains i would even put in that in that quote-unquote next level of villain would be loki himself and i even just mentioned that he's not really a villain anymore so apart from loki i would put michael keaton up there as the vulture from spider-man right he was he was a different kind of villain. He was interesting. It was a little more personal. And, of course, he didn't die at the end of the movie, right? So I don't think it's necessarily a spoiler to imply that Hela is maybe dead. But, again, it's, it was one of those things where we don't really see a lot of... We don't really see her body or... It's, it, it implies that she gets, like, vaporized or whatever. But given that it's Kate Blanchett, first of all, and you don't cast a major character, like a major actor like Kate Blanchett unless you're going to reuse her. And... We, again, we don't kind of see physical evidence of her dying. So I think she's still alive. I do. Uh, it would be kind of a waste to cast her and have her be so awesome just to disappear really quickly. But, you know, maybe she is. But regardless, she was great. Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie, not a villain, but one of the main characters on the good guy side. Another badass character. You know, she just, like, handles everything that comes her way. She makes no excuses for her behavior. She does whatever she wants. She saves Thor, really. So she's one of the more interesting characters in the movie and the last kind of main actor i need to mention is of course mark ruffalo mark ruffalo is in this movie as bruce banner and the hulk and it was really cool we actually get some dialogue from the hulk finally it was the kind of thing you expect from the hulk if you've ever read any of the comics or kind of you know you see you know the only thing we ever hear is hulk smash right so you kind of expect that thing from him he speaks in the hulk i should say speaks in broken sentences and that and that kind of dialogue right so it was fun to see that side of the characters there's some great moments between thor and the hulk himself where they kind of talk to each other and the hulk compares them you know hulk like fire thor like water no well you know i think we're both kind of like fire hulk like raging fire thor like puny fire there's like stuff like that right it's just so it was so great i love that i saw the movie tonight so i feel like i can i still remember some of the lines but you know we probably won't get a hulk movie 
anytime soon due to rights and licensing. So it was nice to see him included in such a major way in this film. They do hand wave over a few things. How did the Hulk get to the planet? Well, you know, how did he establish himself? So on and so forth. That's kind of neither here nor there. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily super important to find out those things, but it would have been nice to get some more information other than the little like snippet of video I think we see at one point for like 30 seconds, right? Um, and of course, uh, Jeff Goldblum, he's like, he, Jeff Goldblum's it up, you know, the grandmaster. What, what do you expect? He, he, it's like, he, it's like, he's the most Jeff Goldblum ish character ever. There should be kind of a scale for Jeff Goldblum characters. And they're all kind of similar. It's like, it's like the character from Grand Budapest Hotel was combined with, you know, uh, Dr. Malcolm from Jurassic Park. And then they, were made into a murderous lunatic, you know, it was, it was a, it was a fun little appearance from him. Uh, some other little things, you know, Korg, the rock guy voiced by Taika Waititi himself. He steals most scenes. He's in great humor, great jokes. Everything about Korg is just wonderful. And speaking of wonder, you know, when, when Thor is kind of captured and he's right about to be introduced to, uh, the grandmaster with Jeff Goldblum, uh, we hear the, one of the Willy Wonka songs in the background. So good. It was so much fun. You know, there are some other fun things and callbacks to other MCU, MCU movies, like when Tony calls Thor point break, Thor getting beat by the Hulk, like Loki did in the first Avengers movie in, in Avengers tower, you know, the lullaby with black widow. There's so many great things. There's even a great cameo by another Hemsworth brother and another actor. I just won't spoil because it's so funny and so unexpected. And even, even though you're now thinking, oh, this is a cameo, who, who can it be? It's just so out of left field that when you see it, you'll laugh. It's just so much fun. Uh, and, and on that same note, the comedy. You can't talk about this movie and not talk about the comedy, right? The comedy, it's just, it's something to see and something to interact with, right? It has a lot of well-timed jokes. And I'll say this, and we're, we're going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. This is, this is that part here, right? Because one of my chief complaints about Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is that every single dramatic moment in that film was undercut by the humor. And not just like one or two here and there, but literally every moment in that movie, Family Guy style, was cut out under its legs with some kind of joke. And I don't have an inherent problem with jokes. I don't have an inherent problem with using drama in jokes as kind of juxtapositioning to each other and to the, the rest of the context of the movie. I have no problem with that because it works quite often very well. And Guardians of the Galaxy 1 did that almost perfectly, I thought, right? And again, it's, it's tied to the idea of expectations. You, you go into this movie with pretty much zero expectations because you don't know what Guardians of the Galaxy is about for most people. And it blows you away. So then you expect that for the next one, and then it's just not as funny, right? But then they, they really beat some jokes into the ground, right? Like the taser face joke, the Pac-Man thing. They kind of over-explain things. Like they had that kind of, like, that root vegetable that everyone kept talking about. They're going to, like, eat it. I want some of that root vegetable. Oh, it's not ripe yet. It's not ripe yet. It's not ripe yet. And then Nebula, there's a point where she's like has a badass moment, and she bites into it, and she spits it out and goes, it's not ripe yet. Like, we get it. We like, we like friggin' get it, okay? That's kind of humor that really bothers me when they over-explain jokes, right? And to get back to Thor, Thor avoids this, again, partially because the idea of expectations. You go into expecting Thor to be a drab affair, and it surprises you, right? But it's also because the, the humor is so offbeat, it's so off-brand, it's almost like not a Marvel movie, even though it's with all these main Marvel characters, right? There are a lot of jokes about brotherhood, a lot of jokes about even expectations from brothers with each other, right? Like Thor expects Loki to act a certain way. Loki expects Thor to act a certain way. Odin expects them both to act a certain way. You know, Hela expects them to act a certain way. Uh, the rest of Asgard expects Thor to act a certain way. You know, it, it's, it's all about expectations. 
And I think that plays a lot into the comedy, right? Yeah, And yes, there are some cringy-ish moments, but some of the greatest mo- parts of the movie, are, you know, when are, are towards the end or are towards dramatic moments, and they don't undercut the dramatic moments with comedy. They, they enhance them. And I think maybe it was simply the case of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 trying a little too hard, but at the same time, it, it never felt like Thor Ragnarok was trying too hard. You know, it always felt like it was natural. It was... It was a, a, a real progression of the story to have these things. And Thor, as we've seen in other movies, has a bit of a personality. So it was great to see it come out in this film, right? I, I, I won't say that Guardians 2 was like bad or anything. It was, a lot, it was a, an above-average movie, but it wasn't as good as Thor Ragnarok. Not even close. But I will say, though, that without Guardians of the Galaxy being as successful as it was, we would not have gotten this movie, Thor Ragnarok. So it's definitely related, right? Although you could also say before that we wouldn't have gotten the cosmic stuff that Guardian showed us without the first few Thor movies, right? So they're closely interlinked. Um, I did mention briefly that Thor, the previous Thor movies, I should say, were kind of drab affairs, right? They're kind of like muted. They're a little, I don't want to say boring, but they're a little darker and not a lot of like things moving and colors going on, right? And in stark contrast to that movie, Ragnarok is one of the most colorful films I have maybe ever seen. Every scene has bright colors and things that just pop off the screen, even when you see it in 3D, because that usually mutes things a little bit. But every costume, every set piece, every action sequence, it all looks so vibrant. Everything, like like kind of venomous poison green for Hela and like light electric blue for Thor and his lightning and, you know, white and and blue for the Valkyries and, like, dark green for the Hulk. And when, when they land on Sakaar, the planet where the Hulk is, you know, we see... We see every color that exists. We see all these like kind of scavengers that wear all sorts of uh, all sorts of clothes and 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 kind of tunics and and like all sorts of things that are just so amazingly vibrant and just pop off the the movie screen. It's it's so interesting to watch. Uh, I went to go see it in 3D and I also went to go see it in IMAX and it's just so interesting and so cool to see it really is honestly. Another little thing I thought was really cool. Uh, the Grandmaster has a has a kind of uh, a, a, a hall or I guess I guess a tower of champions where he builds um, the kind of the a gigantic bust of the his former champions on the building so you can kind of see when when Thor lands there there's I think four or five on the build on the tower itself and we learn that Hulk is the champ the current champion that's how Thor meets him but while Thor is there they begin construction on the Hulk's champion bust and that's pretty cool um, but one of the other busts on the tower is Beta Ray Bill, who I who is a character in the MCU, and he's one of the more kind of cosmic key characters as well. So it's kind of neat to see that little nod, right? Who knows if we'll ever actually see Beta Ray Bill? Probably not. It'd be a little too difficult to, you know, really introduce him. But still, pretty cool to see, right? I at the end of the day. Thor Ragnarok can't exist without the rest of the MCU. And that's not a criticism. It's just an acknowledgement that this film stands in the shoulders of the other ones, whereas the origin stories of Ant-Man and Doctor Strange, though a little formulaic, for example, are their own thing, right? And of course, this is not an origin story. This is a, this is a, a third movie in a, in, a kind of, in a trilogy, right? So it's not a surprise that it's built on things. You, you expect it to and you need it to, right? But it's just interesting to think about. It's, like I mentioned when I first started the review... This movie is an ode to the MCU itself and to almost 80 sci-fi movies itself, right? 
It's it, it, like I mentioned, all those little things that are funny, th- like funny callbacks, Point Break, Loki, the lullaby with Black Widow, etc. Right? It it takes all the little great things, especially from especially from movies like Age of Ultron, which were kind of like ridden a little bit, right? And makes them relevant again, makes them more fun. It it builds on them in a great way, in a, in a way that shared universe movies only can, right? It. At the end of the day, it's just a colorful romp for one of the Avengers who has gotten such little development, even within his own movies, right? And it changes the outlook of, I think, most people who would see this movie on Thor himself, who becomes not only just badass, but also funny and hysterical, right? So it it raises your expectations for Thor as well, because the expectations for Iron Man and for Captain America were already high because their movies are great, right? Right. Winter Soldier is probably still the best Marvel Universe movie. And so you expect Captain America movies to be good. You expect Iron Man movies to be entertaining. You expect this and you expect that. And we never really had much of expectations of Thor. And I think that's why this movie is being received so well. Obviously, not just because of that, but because it's a damn good movie, right? So I'll leave it there. Uh, this review is getting a little long, so I don't want to talk too much more on Thor because I, I, don't, I can't really talk much more about it without spoiling it. And I don't want to spoil it because it's that good. So I'll leave it there. Like I said at the beginning of the film, it's inventive, it's creative, it's funny, it's colorful, it moves quickly. It's a two-hour movie, and you almost don't even realize it at the end of the movie. You're like, holy crap, this movie is over? I, I want it to keep going, right? It's just a, a fun ride, and I, I, I suggest you see this movie in theaters because it's one of those films, like a, like a good comedy, where it's enhanced with your audience, Right. Everyone's going to laugh at some point in this movie. You're not, you might not laugh at every joke, right? But you're going to laugh at something, and that kind of experience always enhances a movie-going experience. Not one person was on their phone. No one was talking to each other other than to, like, kind of slap their friend on the back. And that's what's funny, right? That's what's entertaining about comedies in theater. So that's where I'll leave it. Go see Thor Ragnarok, especially if you're a fan of the MCU. But even if you're not, I think you'll enjoy this movie. Bit of a short episode today... Like I said, we decided to do something a little different. We got a guest on, a relatively fun and important and large guest, and Adnan Verk of ESPN and of the movie podcast Cinephile. Adnan's very articulate, and it was a lot of fun talking to him. Maybe he'll come back on in the future if I haven't scared him away with my dumb questions. You know, we talked about Thor Ragnarok, probably one of the more fun movies of the end of the year, although there is a certain movie with uh, some certain... Jedi that are coming out in about a few in a month and a half that I suspect might top that for me but hey don't want to count your chickens before they hatch as they say right for the next episode because of course Star Wars doesn't come out until mid-December I will be talking about Justice League that will definitely be on the next podcast Justice League of course is kind of a pop culture phenomenon I'm excited to see what that movie is like because you know Suicide Squad was so panned it, it was just so bad. It was, a, it was a bad movie. There were no redeeming qualities in that movie. And yeah, whatever. It won an Oscar. Didn't deserve to. Robbed it. it was robbed from Star Trek Beyond. So screw you, Suicide Squad. You suck. Batman vs. Superman. It was a mediocre movie. I don't think it was quite as bad as... Like, I don't, it wasn't quite as aggressively in-your-face bad like Suicide Squad was. But it was still like not great. At the same time, I really liked Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman's one of the better more fun superhero movies I've seen period. And it was certainly one of the more fun movies that's come out this year in 2017. So it was, it was cool, right? It was, it was kind of neat to see. And and now we get this kind of mix of 
bad Suicide Squad, mediocre Batman versus Superman, good Wonder Woman. So what's going to come out of that with Justice League? Because you're kind of mashing it all together, right? So we'll see. I think Justice League will actually be pretty entertaining. It does look pretty fun, even though we all know Superman's coming back. It's not a spoiler. Batman versus Superman ended with him basically coming back. Like, I mean, what kind of movie spoils like the next movie's big reveal in before before it even came out like that that's just dumb to me anyways i'm really looking forward to seeing justice league i think we're going to have mark on he's going to see the movie with his brother it looks like so maybe we'll have both Stanish brothers on the show who knows we'll see my friend cody as well is going to come on i want to talk about shin godzilla it won a million japanese academy awards and apparently it's quite good so we'll talk some godzilla and you know the difference between american godzilla and and uh Japanese Godzilla. I was going to say Canadian Godzilla, but no, North American and Japanese Godzilla, right? So there's some fun things in the dog coming up. You know, we'll have some more guests on. We'll talk some more pop culture movies. Of course, this time of year is when all the Oscar bait movies start coming out. So we'll definitely see some of those. But, you know, for now, that's it for episode 10. Thank you for listening, not just to this episode, but to all the episodes of Houston We Have a Podcast. I love doing it. I love talking about movies. I love getting feedback with my friends, my family, people I've never heard of. So again, thank you so much for listening to Houston. We have a podcast. I really love doing it with you guys. Send me some feedback if you can, but for now, have a good night.